Okay, everyone, it's 8.30 and we're getting started right now. Welcome to the Soil for Climate interview with the one, the only, the great heroine of the planet, Hunter Lovins. Hunter. Thank you, sir. <laughs> it is an honor, um, beyond words, really, uh, to be interviewing you today. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and to talk to the Soil for Climate community and, and, and the rest of the people out there that are watching. Um, just a real a quick recap if um, people want to just Google Hunter Lovins if you don't already know who she is, but uh, she, she's really a, a hero uh, in this uh, field and a great inspiration for me personally. And, um, you know, when the book, uh, when the book Natural Capitalism came out, creating the next industrial revolution, um, it, it really um, set a precedent and, and, and it, it let people like me know that, that this was real, you know, and we could really believe in this and act on it. And, um, and uh, many other great books to her name, including this book, Climate Capitalism. Um, and, and now, most recently, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about today is this new book, which, is, which will be out September 25th. So mark your calendars for that. Um, it's called A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service of Life. And we're very excited about that. And particularly, um, from the, the Soil for Climate point of view, um, she has a whole section called Growing a Finer Future, you know, where she talks about regenerative agriculture and, um, and then she specifically talks about getting carbon in the soil and, and different ways of doing that, including regenerative cropping and grazing. So welcome, Hunter. Thank you, Seth. It is an honor to be with you. Okay. Uh, please pardon the long introduction. Now, um, Hunter, I just have to start with something personal. Um, I know from experience now that you love rodeos and you're a cowgirl in the true sense and you're even a rodeo champion. Do you have your, um, your patch with you? <laughs> your buckle? Okay. Apologies for the embarrassment, but hold, hold that a little bit closer if you would. And explain to, explain to people what this is. This is a solid silver buckle. I won it at a two-day rodeo, uh, read closely, 1991. So this is kind of ancient history, but uh, gave me a buckle. So, and what? And <laughs> one what, of I guess men. What, what? What were the events that you? That particular one was for barrel racing. I was also a lousy roper in high school. I rode saddle broncs, and uh, just kind of did whatever was needed at the rodeo. Okay, and um, uh, also, folks, I, I had the honor and pleasure of uh, going to a rodeo with uh, with Hunter recently. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to be up close and personal to that cowboy culture that's so important to restoration of the world's plains and grasslands. Just, just say a few words about the connection for you personally between, like, the cowboy culture and rodeoing and Colorado lifestyle and, and, and regenerative agriculture and even sort of your whole mission in life. Gosh. Uh, I'm a Colorado cowgirl. That's, that's sort of at root who I am. But... Uh, the connection to the land is very important. I always felt that it was important to preserve the core of American culture. We, as a country, we grew out of small farmers. We moved west, we became ranchers. And this is core to what our value structure is, caring for each other. There is the myth of the rugged individual, the lone cowboy. The history doesn't put it that way. It was when people got together in community, they helped each other with barn raisings, they helped each other put up their hay, they stood together that we built the West. 
And we, we actually have allowed that reality to get perverted by the myth that we can all stand alone. It's not how cowboys are. And in rodeo, you will see when guys get ready to climb on bucking stock, the guy who is helping him also has a number on his back. They're competitors, but they're working together. Because that's, that's, the, that's the Western way, that's the cowboy way. It's the way of rural people everywhere. But as we began to grapple with the climate crisis, and it is a crisis, and look for solutions, it turns out there really are only two. We can stop emitting as much carbon into the air, and the answer to that is renewable energy and an immediate shift to sustainable uses of energy. But the other half, that, that gets us about half the way to solving the climate crisis. The other half is we've got to suck the stuff out of the air and put it back where it belongs in the soil. Now, there are all sorts of very complicated, expensive ways, direct air capture of carbon, costing $100 a ton up to several thousand dollars a ton. There are screwy ideas like uh, spreading iron filings all over the ocean and trying to increase the growth of plankton, or putting stuff up in space, trying to reduce the amount of sunshine that hits the earth. We, we know so little about the earth's ecosystem. We risk exterminating ourselves and all of life if we start doing screwy ideas like that. And we'll pay several thousand dollars a ton of getting rid of carbon. When we have the answer right beneath our feet. For millennia, across the Great Plains of the United States, across Africa, animals grazed, dense packed because of predators. If you're a bison and there's a pack of wolves, the safe place to be is in the middle of the herd. So everybody's trying to get into the middle. They eat everything because they're dense packed. They fertilize the soil, their hooves chop it up, and then they move on to where there is fresh grass. They don't stay and eat where they've just <laughs> fertilized. So they are constantly in motion. The wolves are constantly nipping at their flanks. And over millennia in the Great Plains, we built up 10 feet of thick black soil. That black is carbon, if you will, young coal. The first pioneers came across, started cutting the plains, growing their crops, and we're now down to inches of that thick black soil. So what if we could put it back? It turns out we can. People like Gabe Brown, North Dakota corn soybean farmer who was going broke, so he said, I've got to cut my costs. So he went to no-till. He didn't break the soil. Then he went to planting cover crops that cooled the soil. Then he brought animals on. The animal impact, the trampling, the eating, the fertilizing, started to build carbon back in his soil. And he's gone on some of his plots from a little over 1% soil organic material to now on some of them as high as 15, uh, I think average of 11. His, native prairie soil is 7% soil organic matter. What Gabe is doing is rolling climate change backward. What if we did that over all the world's grasslands? Why do you do it? Because it's profitable. Gabe's ranch is now profitable. He's selling beef and various other animal products. He's selling honey. He's doing agritourism. Oh, and he's still growing corn and soybeans, but he's doing it sustainably. 
He's doing it regeneratively. And he's solving the climate crisis. But because it's profitable, we contrast that to the several thousand dollars a ton to sequester carbon through direct air capture. This is profitable. Farmers and ranchers ought to be doing this anyway because it keeps them in business. Now, when you have something that's profitable, it can go to scale. And this is what gives me hope that we can solve the climate crisis. Analysts like Tony Siva, Stanford prof, say we will be 100% renewable by 2030, again, because doing this is profitable. Tony cites for technologies and a business model, fall in the cost of solar and utility scale solar is now below two cents a kilowatt hour. Just running a natural gas plant is about four cents a kilowatt hour. Batteries. Elon Musk was able to put a utility scale battery system up in Southern California when the Aliso Canyon gas well blew out in record time and at a price point roughly equivalent to a natural gas peaking plant. Battery costs are falling dramatically. The electric car, China has said, we're going to phase out the internal combustion engine. General Motors has said our future is electric. And the driverless car, these things are on the road now. Yeah, I, uh, Automatic Tesla killed somebody the other day. 6,000 people die every year in car pedestrian crashes with ordinary fueled cars. Cars are dangerous. It turns out the autonomous cars are vastly safer than having a fallible human driving these things. But what's interesting is the business model. If you have an AEV, autonomous electric vehicle, you whistle one up on your smartphone, it comes, takes you to where you're going, drops you off, goes get somebody else. Now you need one-sixth the number of cars on the road, so you have lots of city land left over to, what, make affordable housing or parks. It costs tenfold less than what you pay today to buy, maintain, fuel, insure a private vehicle. At tenfold less, people are going to go to that. You power them with utility-scale renewables. You have just transformed the energy system. No longer do we need coal plants for electricity, oil to run vehicles. We're now 100% renewable. And Tony says, this is inevitable. Now, if you don't believe me, check out Tony. If you Google SEBA, S-E-B-A-C-R-E-S, which is a video he shot about a year ago here in Colorado, and then SEBA, S-E-B-A, World Affairs. You'll get a separate video shot a couple months ago when he, where he walks through this logic. And then you tell me if you disagree with this. Suppose it's not 2030. Suppose it's 2040. We still are 100% renewable 10 years before the UN has said the world has to cut carbon emissions by 80%. So we've solved half the climate crisis. Now, why do I believe in regenerative agriculture? because I've used it and it works. I took over the management of about a thousand acres of ground that had been owned by a nonprofit that thought cows were evil. And for about 20 years, they had no cows on the ground. The land was degrading. It was being invaded by noxious weeds. It was eroding. And we brought cows back in two years time. We had the grass back. We had endangered species that hadn't been seen on the land for 20 years and we were putting carbon into the soil. You can do this at home. 
If you have a compost bin and a garden, you're putting carbon back into the soil. You can also support this by buying grass beef, buying from local ranchers who are managing their herds regeneratively, using an approach called holistic management that was developed by a man named Alan Savory, wildlife biologist in then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, who observed that where the native herds moved across the land, the land was healthy. Where the white settlers ranched cattle, the land was not so healthy. In fact, it was degrading. And Alan has on plot after plot after plot, from Africa to the American West, his disciples in Australia are doing this. It's now being done on millions of acres around the world, increasing the profitability of the rancher because with this approach, you can dramatically increase stocking rates and heal the land. And it's rolling climate change backward. Alan recently won the Healing Prize, Alan and the Savory Institute, for their work in helping to solve the climate crisis. There are reams of scientific studies from places like uh, Texas A&M, scientists across the United States. There's a great book by uh, Judith Schwartz, uh, Cows Save the Planet, that lays out all of the logic of this. Farmers like Joel Salatin at Polyface Farms, making a great living practicing this. Will Allen at White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. You go down to White Oak Pastures and you see fog in the morning rising off Will's fields. His neighbor fields are bare. Why? His fields have moisture. The soil, when you put carbon in the soil, it can hold water better. Gabe found the same thing, Gabe Brown up in, uh, in North Dakota, when you get these rain bombs that just deluge a piece of ground. Ordinary conventionally farmed soil can't hold that moisture. It runs off, creating erosion. His ground can hold the soil because of the additional carbon there. So now he doesn't need to water as much. He also doesn't need to use any fertilizer because the biological community, the microorganisms, particularly the mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, are creating the nutrients that the plants need. They're taking it from the air, mineralizing it, and then making it available to the plants in the soil. This approach, again, is profitable because you don't have to be paying for the fertilizer. Because you're not setting out a monoculture like just corn or just soybeans, you don't have to have herbicides and pesticides. L lower cost, greater profitability. Gabe says, I'd rather sign the back of the check than the front of the check. Okay, great. Um, Hunter, uh, thank, you for, thank you for that introduction and thank you for saying um, I, I'd rather sign the back of the check than the front. Yes, restoring the world can be profitable, okay? Let's, let's, uh, well, I think that. more to the point, yeah. if it is not profitable, it won't happen. Markets, right, high five on that. markets are incredibly, market mechanisms are incredibly powerful tools. And we could argue all day about whether capitalism is a good thing or a bad thing, but it's the system that we have. And if you have an approach that requires government subsidies, oh, by the way, like fossil fuels, which are subsidized to the tune of 
$5.3 trillion every year. That's $10 million a minute. Maybe we ought not to be pursuing them. Um, okay, excellent. Thank you. And um, um, I just want to give a shout out to the people who are joining. I can see uh, your names on the hey, list Hey, Carl. Good to see uh, you. Carl and Greg Watson. Thank you. Hey, um, Greg. How yeah, are you? There he is right there. Um, um, friends, please use the comment area here on Facebook to ask your questions. So that's, that's part of why we're doing it this way, so people can just ask questions directly. Okay, I can see you're there, but... But uh, please ask, ask the questions. Anything about um, the reduction of, of emissions through the better uh, technology or the sequestration of carbon through regenerative agriculture, cropping, grazing, reforestation, even, even wetlands restoration is an important part of this. Uh, marsh marsh restoration is an important part. Yes, yeah. seagrass. Seagrass. Seagrass <laughs> sea restoration is extremely important. So, you know, basically, you know, helping Mother Nature to, to pull carbon out of the air. Um, so any questions in that area, you know, uh, please ask. Um, also, I, I just want to kind of just throw out um, some, some concepts and, and some numbers. Um, what we talk a lot in, um, in, in, in the climate science modeling about the forcing that the extra CO2 in the atmosphere creates. It's called, it's called forcing, okay? And then that's the greenhouse effect. Okay, we know that that's real. Um, but there are other factors that are going on in the ground, particularly the amount of moisture or water that's in the soil and in the plants. And as you know, it takes a lot of energy to do to evaporate water. And then that's the cooling effect of transpiration. And so here's just a sort of a data item for you to get. For every 1% increase in soil organic matter in an acre, okay, up to, I'm sorry, 15, 30 centimeters, I'm not sure exactly that data item, we can look it up, but basically, you know, the top soil layer. For every 1% increase in soil organic matter, there's an additional 20,000 gallons of water being held. 20,000 gallons per acre in the, in the top horizon for every 1% increase. And a typical restoration, um, um, uh, you know, a procedure with cover crops, no-till, rotational, uh, holistic managed grazing um, can increase soil organic carbon by several percent, two, one, two, three, maybe even four percent. I mean, I, in, in the soil organic carbon world, that one percent is, is a big difference. Um, so, so now you're talking maybe, maybe 80, 100,000 more gallons of water in the soil and biomass itself. And that creates cooling, regardless of what the CO2 level is. So yes, we have to bring the CO2 level down to um, decrease the forcing, the greenhouse effect, but we can also simultaneously be adding carbon to the soil, which adds moisture to the soil, which creates local cooling as well. And then that impacts weather patterns and everything else. And uh, my colleague, Rich Shin of uh, Big Picture Beef famously says, give me Iowa and I'll change the weather. And uh, it's sort of funny, but it's true. You literally can change the continental weather. You look at how the jet streams blow west to east. Um, Iowa's sitting right there, right smack in the middle of the country, right where all the tall grass prairie used to be. It's all in soy and corn now. There's almost no soil left, right? Uh, if you were to restore that back to tall grass prairie, you literally could change the weather. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, okay, let me see. 
Uh, oh, hey, Steve. Steve okay. McCausland just asked a question. Okay, why don't you uh, feel so Steve? Hoof types of wild and domesticated hooves animal, hooved animals and how they affect soil. Wild animals tend to have smaller hooves, sharper hooves. Uh, cattle have bigger hooves. But if you consider that the carbon, the 10 feet of thick black soil, the carbon that was put into the Great Plains, were put there by bison, they have essentially the same hooves as cattle. And we've seen the regeneration of soil with goats, with little bitty hooves, with elk, with cattle, any kind of animal impact that helps chop up the soil. A friend of mine named Dan Daggett has a marvelous book called Gardeners of Eden, in which he describes how, you know, if we had intact wilderness across the world, fine, leave it alone, but we don't. What we have are vast tracts of land that humans have disturbed, that where we have changed the ecology. Dan says the world needs us. Humans are important. We are the gardeners of Eden. And he walks through a whole series of case studies of where people have used cattle to bioremediate very toxic mine waste, taken complete desert and begun to bring grasslands back. And you start by turning cattle out and feeding them. But then over a year or so's time, the native grass, well, the grass comes back, you've been seeding it. And over time, if you select for it, you can get back to the native grass, as Seth said, the tall grass prairie. Dr. Wes Jackson at the Land Institute has been showing how you can grow commercial crops of perennials. So you don't have to break the soil every year. You don't have to plant every year. They just come up perennially. And Patagonia has now started growing, or producing and selling what it calls long root ale. Because these prairie grasses have very, very long roots, 10 feet long roots. That's taking the carbon out of the air, putting it 10 feet deep. And they are using a perennial wheat that Wes developed called Kernza. Makes great bread, by the way. So we can reinvent how we do agriculture around the world and do so profitably. Um, okay, uh, thank you so much for that. Um, I do see some more questions come, um, coming up. Thank you for asking them. We'll get to them. Um, I also- uh, Christoph, you asked about Nori. Uh, Nori's a very interesting company they're using blockchain to create a cryptocurrency, the Nori, to help people invest in regenerative agriculture by offsetting their carbon emissions using this blockchain-based technology called the Nori. Very cool approach. I very much look forward to learning more about it. Nori is a startup. And uh, kudos to y'all. I'm talking with some folk in the UK that have a company called Viridium that is trying to do the same thing, create a coin called a Verde, which would be used for very large sales of carbon with which the carbon would already be offset. They were going to keep standing forests standing, the conventional red program under the UN. And I said, fine, I've got nothing against standing forests. I used to be a forester. I've planted a lot of trees. But in today's world, it is not sufficient to call keeping a standing forest standing as an offset 
you've got to either be driving the transition to renewable energy or investing in regenerative agriculture. And so this group's now looking at doing that. Nori's a little ahead of them in that because they started off by looking at regenerative agriculture. So good on y'all. Okay, um, Hunter, thank you for um, talking about the economics of that. Uh, uh, Christoph, thank you for the question. And um, the, uh, the Reverse of Palooza event was awesome. And people, people should just go ahead and Google Reverse of Palooza. Um, uh, but just quickly, I want to throw in some more numbers to, to you know, buffet th this whole thing here so people understand what we're talking about. Um, basically, humans are emitting around 10 gigatons of carbon every year into the atmosphere. And um, nature on her own takes out about five. Um, a lot of that is going into the oceans, which actually isn't a good thing because that creates carbonic acid. Um, but, but about half of it is going into soil, which is a good thing. Um, so that leaves about five gigatons of carbon in the year in terms of extra loading, and that's why the parts per million of CO2 goes up every year. We obviously need to decrease the loading through the better technology, the green electric technology that Hunter was talking about, but we also need to increase the amount of carbon capture through, um, through agriculture and regenerative cropping and, 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 uh, and grazing and and reforestation, not just using a standing forest as an offset, no, actually creating new forests and wetlands restoration. And then, so there needs to be a point where, you know, the emissions levels off and, 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 the, and the drawdown, the sequestration is better, is bigger than the emissions. And at that point, the carbon level in the atmosphere actually starts to go down. Now, um, um, Richard Teague uh, from Texas A&M has a recent paper and he says in North America alone, through regenerative cropping and grazing, we could be drawing down 1.2 gigatons of carbon per year just in North America. And um, if you multiply his per acre numbers by the world, by all the cropping and grazing land that's available in the world, that comes up out to about 10 gigatons. So we could conceivably be pulling out 10 gigatons of carbon per year every year which would offset all of our loading and start to pull us down. But of course, we need to stop admissions as well. I mean, the point is, you know, we're going to be in bed with this problem for a long time. So we need to seriously do both, stop the admissions and also increase the sequestration. Emissions. Uh, emissions. Admissions. Admissions. Well, okay. Anyway, um, and uh, uh, Hunter, just want to get to a, a personal thing here. Just talk briefly about growing up with MLK junior or seeing oh. him as a child and how that inspired you and particularly also Cesar Chavez. My uh, mother used to work with John L. Lewis in the coal fields of West Virginia. My dad helped mentor Cesar Chavez and Martin King. They were around the house when I was growing up. So people say, well, at what point in your life did you decide to do this? <laughs> I'm not sure I had a whole lot of choice. This is, uh, this is what you do, try to make the world a better place. Well, but how, like, I mean, how, how old were you when they were actually coming around and did you have conversations? Young? Not much. I was a kid. But this, nonetheless, when people like that are in your presence, you, you are affected. I remember the, uh, the day my mother came home and said, we're not buying grapes anymore. I said, why not? I like grapes. She said, uh, says, I was boycotting them. To this day, I have a hard time buying a grape. So I grow my own. Um, uh, Hunter, that, that's profound. You know, I, I, 
I didn't realize so much of, of that history. And, um, and it really is personal, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's really personal. And, and I just want to say, you know, for me, for me personally, you know, I've been to the Africa Center for Holistic Management in Zimbabwe. I've stood in tall grass where there used to be desert. And I just encourage other people to do that because once you do, you know, as I say, I'm standing in the efficacy. No one can ever take that experience away from you. No one can ever say this doesn't work. Or you can't reverse desertification. You can, and I witness it myself, and I encourage other people. Well, to go do. down to Bluffton, Georgia. Take a vacation. Go stay at White Oak Pastures with Will. And one of the things that you'll see is the little town of Bluffton, which was decaying. The buildings were falling apart, rotting. Kudzu was taking them over. Will hires 137 people on his acreage. His neighbor farmer, commodity peanut farmer, same acreage, has four employees. Commodity agriculture is destroying not only the soil, but rural culture. Will, because he's hiring all of these people, giving them jobs, enabling them to live in their hometown, is rebuilding the town of Bluffton. It was taught we were on a tour and Will pointed out uh, a bald eagle. And to those of us who live in Colorado, that's not quite such a rare experience. But he said uh, when, when he started doing this, there was, uh, they only occasionally see an eagle. Now they have 80 breeding pair. Why are they there feeding his chickens? He runs pasture chickens, totally free range chickens. These things are just out there in his pastures, helping to do bug control after he's run cattle on the land. And the eagles are having a field day. Will loses thousands of chickens a year to the eagles. He said, I'm not gonna shoot them. So they, people say I'm supposed to tithe to the church. I guess I'm tithing to nature. So now he has agro-tourism where people can come and see the eagles. This is the kind of attitude of working with nature, of learning from nature, that regenerative farmers and ranchers practice. And it's a, it's a better practice for all of us. If you know where your food comes from, I fed Seth last night a supper, <laughs> uh, literally went out to my garden and dug up some potatoes and harvested some lettuce and we toasted a steak from a steer that was named Larkspur. Larkspur had a great life, lived on, uh, on the ranch and uh, is now nourishing us. This is a connection to your home, to your community, to the people that you work with that most of us have lost. When you engage in regenerative agriculture, you can get it back. Seth and I went to a meeting the other night put on by a marvelous man named Woody Tesh. Woody has pulled together a group of about 75 people. They've all bought in for about $250 to a group called Soil. They meet once a month and get pitched by local farmers. In this case, uh, a man from literally a block down the road from where we're sitting, who has a farm called Aspen Moon Farms. It's a biodynamic organic farm was asking for a modest loan. A woman who has, what did she call that thing, micro-ranching? Micro-ranching and micro-herding. Who's growing crickets and mealworms as, a, as an alternative source of protein. And this group, collectively, spoke with these entrepreneurs, asked them questions. A fellow had done a due diligence sheet of looking at their books. Uh, are these going concerns? 
and the group collectively voted to give them their loans, zero interest loans. They're not in this to make money. They are in this to grow their culture, to grow their community, and to grow the capacity of the Boulder Valley to produce food of the, the sort that we want to eat. Now, me, I'd much rather go down the, the road where uh, Aspen Loon is, uh, is growing cattle and chickens and delicious vegetables than eat crickets, but that's just me. Uh, they've been down in Mexico and they come out with this big old bowl of crickets. They're fried up crickets and I ate them and they were pretty good. So whatever, whatever's tasty to you. <laughs> that's right, okay. There's no accounting for taste, right? Um, no, actually I, I was at that meeting and this woman was, was lovely and uh, she's an entrepreneur and she wants to do uh, insect protein and good for her. So they. They they supported it. Um, also, um, we've I got, told Woody I'm going to buy in. I'm going to become a member. Of yeah, that yeah, yeah. Group. No, no, you should. And, and I'm 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 happy that I'm a, I'm a member myself. Um, please um, post questions here on the right on the in the comment area. We've got about 15 minutes left. Uh, left a little bit left, uh, a little bit less. So please uh, post your questions now. Um, I, I want to say something about uh, the sort of the eco-tourism, agro-tourism. So, um, Soil for Climate is working with a project uh, in Kenya. We're, you know, hoping to get this uh, off the ground, but some of you may already have heard about it. Uh, we're working with the Maasai community. And, uh, um, you know, the, the goal is to restore, um, starting with, with a watershed, but then eventually going to, you know, that whole sort of community and, and eventually sort of a whole division. It, it would be about 50,000 hectares. Um, you know, that, that, that's uh, quite a big area to be working with, but in terms of the whole world, it's small. Um, but, but nonetheless, uh, that's the goal. And, and these would be measurable outcomes. You'd be able to see the improvement of carbon in the soil. You'd be able to measure it. You'd be able to see the better grass. You could, from space, you know, from Google Earth satellites, you could, you could tell the reflectivity difference. You could tell the temperature difference. You know, we, we want verifiable changes in land. Um, and then that's a climate solution. So anyway, getting back to the tourism thing, you know, the typical thing to go to Kenya, you see a Maasai community and they put on their, their robes and, 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 and they do cultural things and it's sort of a Western tourism thing and you see it and you leave. But, but we want to do something where like, this is regenerative agriculture and cultural tourism. Like, yes, you go to this community and you learn about how they've restored their land. And now it's not just like, you know, uh, you know, this, oh, look at the noble you know, savage. Oh, oh, look at the noble savage. It's like, no, these people are your future. You know, they're restoring soil and you need to learn from them how to do it. So, you know, that's my hope in terms of where we're going to go. Um, and, uh, oh, I also just want to say something about, uh, um, so we're talking to Hunter. So her new book is called A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service of Life. This will be out uh, September 25th. And um, there is a whole section in it on um, called on regenerative agriculture called Growing a Finer Future. And then there's a whole section in that um, titled How Much Carbon Can We Draw Down? And in that section, it cites uh, a, a policy brief, a technical paper that I want to uh, refer to you now. Um, uh, Soil for Climate was a co-author with um, a group at Tufts University called G-Day that stands for Global Development and Environment Institute. Global Development and Environment Institute is G-Day, G-D-A-E. And the title of the paper is Hope Below Our Feet, Soil is a Climate Solution. So please Google that. And I think that's a pretty good brief in terms of numbers and that type of thing. And we're delighted that Hunter has cited it in her new book. Um, okay, so please uh, ask your questions. Um, 
you, you responded to him. We responded. Okay, so um, Hunter, um, anything else you want to just add? Like, uh, if you want to sort of give people um, a direction, you know, do this. You know, what's like the number one thing for people? If people do? ask, what can I do? And my standard answer is dot. Do one thing every day. What's your dot? Wake up in the morning and say to yourself, what's my dot today? You can have a dot for a long time. One of my dots is do not drink from plastic bottles of water. Go cups do just fine. I don't always adhere to it. I forget my go cup. I'm somewhere where they're serving large quantities of bottled water and nothing else. Fine, you, you, you will fall down on your dot. Plastic straws, that's my latest thought. So I've asked everybody around me, when we go out to a restaurant, remind me, no straws, no straws. We Americans use, I forget what the exact number is, uh, 500 school buses worth of plastic straws every year, most of which go into the ocean. They fall through the cracks of recycling facilities, they wash away. And in the scheme of things, that's insignificant. What do you drive? I drive a LEAF, an electric car. I fuel it off the solar panels at the ranch, so I drive for free. And I got into this because a friend of mine said he just bought an electric car. He did it for the math. He said, I went down to the dealer and talked with them about what I would pay in monthly payments, and I realized what they want me to pay in monthly payments is what I have been paying in for gasoline. He said, so I bought one. I love it. I've been down in Denver debating the frackers, and they put a guy up against me who was really good, and he had the last word. And he said, look, you drive vehicles, you need our product, we're gonna drill it, you're gonna buy it. I went home fairly depressed, woke up the next morning. My husband, who's a horseshoer, was uh, gonna go horseshoeing, and it was raining, and he said, hey, you wanna go test drive a leaf? said, yeah, I do. So I went down to the dealership and they had a used one. And I drove it and I said, can I really drive it? Can I punch it? He said, yeah, it's true what they say about electric cars, the torque is awesome. And so we bought it. My husband drives it, he calls it the hippie car. He and another good old boy were sitting at a stoplight and it was one of these coal rolling trucks, big truck with a diesel truck with a diesel tunes so that it'll blow black smoke all over Priuses. And they were Cole Rowland, Rob and James. And Rob just smiled, waited for the light change, left the old boy in the dust. I have so far off the line beat a Porsche, Mercedes, a BMW, a Mustang, and these big smoker trucks. Electric car is a screamer. You will love driving it. As more of a switch to electrics, that's less petroleum, oil that we're digging up from insecure parts of the world, shipping all over the world, and then blowing out as smog into our cities. What do you eat? Where does it come from? The average molecule of food in the United States travels 2,500 miles before somebody eats it. You belong to a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. Aspen Moon down the way has a CSA. CSAs all across the country. When you buy into a CSA, you get to know the farmer. You realize what their challenges are. You're there, you're beginning to become part of your community.
these are the kinds of lifestyle choices that you can make. Who made the shirt on your back? I buy most of my clothes at Goodwill. Goodwill, of course, helps uh, disabled people, people who are down on their luck, get a second chance at life. Everything you do throughout your day is a choice of whether or not you are helping to create a finer future. The reason we wrote the book, and I wrote it with uh, Stuart Wallace, who for many years ran the Economics Foundation in the UK, Anders Wiegmann, who uh, runs the Swedish government's uh, climate organization, John Fullerton, who founded Capital Institute. John was 18 years at JP Morgan until he walked away. He said, we can do this better. And in the book, we walk through what the, the very real and scary challenges are facing us. We're in a horse race with catastrophe. The good news is we're in the race and we know what to do. We have all the technologies we need to solve all the problems facing us. We need a new story. We need a story of, as uh, Buckminster Fuller said, a world that works for 100% of humanity. So I've been working with a group of people, people like Andrew Winston, author of the great book, uh, Big Pivot, or Freya Williams, who wrote the book Green Giants, profiling the next billion dollar companies and how they bake sustainability into everything that they're doing. Dr. Michael Pearson at Fordham, people who are reframing what humanistic management means and who we are as human beings. The, the narrative that runs the world now is that we're all greedy bastards. But that's okay because markets are perfect and in a perfect market, you versus me will somehow aggregate to the greater good for all. Yeah, right, bullshit. But because markets are perfect, we don't need government. So government should get, uh, as Grover Norquist said, drowned in a bathtub. And this is the world that is now driving humanity and many other species, 10 of which go extinct today, to the edge of collapse. We need a new story. What we have said, shared prosperity on a healthy planet. And in the book, we walk through how to transform corporations, finance, energy, agriculture. There are many other sectors, but <laughs> the book would be a tome if, uh, if we took them all on. Look at the policy measures that are needed. Do you vote? Please do, it matters. And get engaged in politics at your local level. Do you know the names of your city council people? Do you know your congressman? Congressperson, in my case, it's a congressman who's now running for governor. And when he announced for governor, I walked up to him, brilliant man named Jared Polis. I walked up to him and said, Jared, I'm with you. Because I know him and I know what he does. He's always been there for me. If I need something, I can call him up on the phone. You ought to know your congressperson. You ought to know your senator. Politics is a contact sport. It's not a spectator sport. You need to be in it. These are all things that you can do with your life. But remember, do one thing. Thank you, Hunter. Thank you so much. If I can... Um... Jump in here for a second right now because we're sure. running out of time and I just want to say a few things. Thank you. Um, you know, the one thing I do is I buy local grass-fed beef whenever I can Good when, when I'm in the supermarket. Like, that's my one thing. And um, also, just uh, based on what Hunter just said, I was just taking some notes. Um, 
uh, one thing about voting and the, the legislative side. So, so folks, um, so all for climate is, is active uh, in legislation. Uh, we've actually contributed to two bills, uh, Massachusetts and Vermont, and given testimony on several others. So please Google Healthy Soils Act or Healthy Soils Initiative or Healthy Soils Vermont or Healthy Soils Connecticut or Healthy Soils Massachusetts or Colorado or California and now Texas. So there's a whole sort of movement to get healthy soils uh, in, the, in the legislative uh, narrative. Uh, there, there's various spins on exactly how it will work and how it gets financed. Um, uh, some are looking at a finance on fertilizer and then giving that money to farmers that are, can show improvements in soil. So, so that's a whole thread, get involved in that. Um, uh, the whole thing about like um, a new story, imagine if when you go into Whole Foods, all the aisles, the whole layout of the store is based on its carbon footprint of the food product. Just, just think about that for a second. You know, you go in there, you know, so Jeff Bezos owns it now. It's Amazon Foods, right? So there's the wealthiest man in the world, $150 billion. Imagine if, if the whole thing is just retooled based on the carbon footprint of the product you want to buy. Okay, and which would be the best product? That is the product that's not only minimally um, hurting the climate, but is actually helping the climate. Like there's actually a negative carbon footprint or a drawdown associated with that product. Um, it, it, from what I can tell, regeneratively grown beef. They would, it would obviously be regeneratively managed beef. There's no question about it. Or, or and then next would be crops that are part of a beef rotation no-till cover crops that are then part of a beef rotation. That's it. You know, the, the alternatives, and I don't want to... Well, regenerative eggs. Right. Well, exactly. So, you know, a, a, a system in that space, which animals... Long root ale. Good beer. <laughs> and there's the booze. Okay. All right. Well, listen, folks, we are coming up at 9.16, and we, we did say we want, wanted to end at 9.15. Um, if there's no more urgent question... Um, um, sorry, Alpha, I see you just joined, but uh, you can go back and, and see it. We do need to wrap up. Um, okay, so is this a good time? This is a great time. So, okay. Thanks all for joining us. Uh, do please check out the book, A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. It'll hit your bookstores around about the 25th of September, and then I'll be traveling around the country uh, vlogging the book. I hope I see you. Yes, and uh, we hope to get you into like the Boston, uh, New England area. Vermont. We'll, we'll have a book signing there. Okay, thanks so much. Okay, bye everyone. Adios, thanks, thanks for viewing.